How are we doing? Yeah? Okay, I'll take it. All righty. Well, it's so lovely to see you all this morning. It's great to see you mostly smiling. Can I see some smiles? Thank you. That makes me feel a bit better. So, today, we're going to be diving into God's Word. We're going to be talking about what God has to say to us, where we are right now. But to do that, I want to start by asking you a question. Are you ready for my question? Okay. Which Jesus are you worshiping? Mm. Yeah, you heard me right. Some of you thought of some answers, and I'll just say the question again. Which Jesus are you worshiping? To many of you, I hope that sounded a bit strange. Which Jesus? There is, of course, only one Jesus. Yes, well, amen, there's only one Jesus, but which idea of Jesus are you worshiping? Let me explain. Ellie was born in a small, impoverished village in Kenya. This was 500 kilometers west of Nairobi in Kenya's rural sugar belt. As a young man in his poor village, Ellie heard the gospel from a preacher and instantly signed up with Christianity. He became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. However, and this is a big however, the gospel Ellie was presented was primarily a gospel of health and wealth. The idea of Jesus that he was introduced to was one who would provide material and financial blessing. So to Ali, this sounded really good, and he dove deep into his faith. He himself one day becoming a preacher, promising, this was his message, promising to those who would look to Jesus that Jesus would in turn bless them with great health, successful careers, and amazing spiritual powers. But one day, this all came crashing down for Ellie. Ellie and his wife, while living and believing they were following Jesus, were faced with a number of shocks. Firstly, there was the sudden and unexpected death of their firstborn child, Whitney. This was soon followed by the sudden decline and death of their newborn, Robin. This, in turn, was followed by a series of miscarriages. One thing after another. Death upon death. And as a result, as you might imagine, Ellie's faith in Jesus imploded. Reflecting on this hard, difficult time in his life, Ellie wrote, uh, writes this. Without answers, we were dismayed with God, whose ways no longer made sense to us. Faith became a mirage. We kept up appearances, trying to pretend we didn't despair. Yet inwardly, we felt doubtful, hopeless, and even cursed. Ellie had faith in Jesus, but his faith was more like a business deal, and his G Jesus was more like a genie. When Jesus didn't keep up his end of the arrangement, it all came crashing down. And when life's horrors came, Ellie's faith turned out to be more of a liability rather than a security. And his Jesus, rather than being a shepherd who cared for him, was nowhere to be found. Utterly devastating. Believe it or not, as I tell this horrible, hard story, it's actually amazing that if we were to talk more about it, Ellie actually has a happy ending. 
In the following years, he would meet some amazing Christians, have some incredible encounters, and he would learn the powerful lesson that we need to learn today as well. Only the true Jesus can provide genuine hope of salvation, justice, eternity, and peace. And only the true Jesus can be an object of faith that allows us to survive and even thrive when life storms come and this world's craziness seeks to overcome. Only the true Jesus can provide the living, grounding, and everlasting hope that we associate with the name of Jesus. And at the end of his unspeakable trials, of his tragic hardships, that's what Ellie learned. And that's what we ought to learn today. In this crazy, sick, confused, death-filled, hope-sapping, life-draining world, we need the hope only the true Jesus can provide. In this world, there are a lot of counterfeits. Ideas of Jesus promoted by false teachers, by the media, by ideas we just come up in our own heads. There's the genie Jesus that Ellie embraced. There's the cool guy Jesus or the boyfriend Jesus, the ideas of Jesus that just make you feel good. There's the just a prophet Jesus or the special messenger Jesus that some religions and religious uh, leaders promote. There's, of course, the political Jesus who only really cares about certain policies, and that's about it. The list goes on and on and on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's all sorts of Jesuses out there, but the reality is when the going gets tough, when this life and this world comes at you with all of its complexities and hardships, those Jesuses won't be enough. They're nice, they might be comfortable, they might be familiar, they might be fun, but they can't save you. Ellie learned that the hard way. Some of you here might have learned that the hard way. You might have learned that the hard way every day with every new trial. The reality is if we're going to survive and thrive in this world as Christians, we need the true Jesus. And to find this true Jesus, we need to keep our eyes fixed on who Jesus truly is. So to do that, I'm going to ask you to Turn in your Bibles with me. Follow with me. We're going to read Hebrews 1, verses 5 to 14. That's Hebrews 1, verses 5 to 14. And we're going to discover who the true Jesus is. We're going to encounter the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of the church, the Jesus who can provide true and lasting hope of salvation, justice, peace, and life. The Jesus who is better than a genie, cooler than a boyfriend, and certainly more than a messenger. So please follow with me. Hebrews 1, verses 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, to get today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That was the word of God. Before we really dive in here, we first need to talk about some context. I grant that the way I just spoke, that this text might seem a little bit out of place. You might be thinking, Christian, based on your intro, I thought we were going to be talking about the true Jesus and the hope found in him. But this text sounded like it started and ended by talking about angels. What gives? Well, that would be a fair question. So let me back up a little bit and tell you what's going on here. The book of Hebrews was written to a new Christian community, but this Christian community, while new and excited, was starting to really struggle. In the face of trials and persecution, hardships and various difficulties, and all the doubts that came with that, this once uh, new and excited group of Christians lost steam. Because of their circumstances, they were paying less attention to Christian teaching. Others, because of their hardships, were just giving up on attending church. Many in this context were considering going back to their old Jewish faith. In this book, the book of Hebrews, the author is reminding those Christians that in the face of difficulties, in the face of immense hardships, in the face of persecution, death, and doubt, they shouldn't give up on their Christian faith. Rather, they should press deeper in. Why? Because Jesus is greater than any angel, priest, religious ceremony, or spiritual practice they could ever come up with. Because in Jesus alone is where they could find true rest and everlasting salvation. So it's in this broader context where our passage comes in. The author is basically working with the same question we started with. Which Jesus are you worshiping? Because at that time, facing the problems we just outlined in their religious context, a lot of people were tempted to think of Jesus as an angel. An important angel who brought new laws to people, but just an angel nonetheless. More like a special messenger from God. The author is having none of that. If people are tempted to think of Jesus as an angel, just a messenger of the law, he's going to set them straight. He's going to declare to them just how amazing the true Jesus is. How amazing the real Jesus is, especially compared to the angels. So that's why there's all this angel talk. The way that Ellie, because of his circumstances, because of his hardships, was attracted to and embracing the genie Jesus, the Christians back then facing their hardships and their context were tempted to worship the angelic Jesus or the messenger Jesus. Just the way that some of us here today, because of our circumstances, because of our difficulties, because of our trials, might be tempted to worship the social justice Jesus or the conservative Jesus or the pat on the back Jesus or my favorite, the affirming Jesus. 
And that's because of our circumstances, our trials, our difficulties. The reality is, whatever idea of Jesus we're tempted to turn to, it's a major problem. A problem that could set you and your faith up for disaster, just like it did for Ellie, and just like it was doing for those Christians back then. Thankfully, no matter what idea of Jesus we're tempted by, the answer to them is all the same. We need to encounter the true Jesus. If we're going to survive and even thrive in this world, we need to keep our faith fixed on the true Jesus. And to do that today, we're going to follow along with the argument in our text. Because as we'll see, as our author explains why Jesus is superior to the angels, to the idea of an angelic Jesus, he gives us an amazing picture of who the true Jesus really is. And why faith in this true Jesus can bless our lives in unparalleled ways, especially in this crazy, fallen world. So now, let's dive in with our first point. A living faith embraces Jesus as Messiah. So I want you to follow with me. We're going to stay in our text this morning. Look at verse 5 with me. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus is the son of God, the promised Messiah. Something we're going to notice about our text this morning is that the author does a lot of quoting. The author here is bringing together the ancient scriptures to make a masterful theological argument, that is, very relevant to the lives of the people back then. He's going to be talking about who Jesus is and why he's so amazing. So to do that, he starts in this first point by quoting Psalm 2-7, a line which is incredibly important throughout the Bible. It's quoted at Jesus' baptism. It's referenced at Jesus' transfiguration. And the Apostle Paul even uses this line when talking about Jesus' resurrection. Essentially, In this first verse, the author is saying, oh, you think Jesus is an angelic messenger? You think he's really like an angel? Really? Then tell me, of which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's right, none of them. The real, true Jesus is uniquely the son of God. And this identification as the son of God carries with it massive implications, ranging from nature to authority, but most importantly now, to Jesus' role as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Promised Savior. There are many texts that you might think of when you think of Jesus being the Promised Messiah. I know a favorite one at Christmas time is Isaiah 9-6. You'll, you'll know the verse, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But as I was studying and I was digging into text, my mind actually went a lot earlier. It went to Genesis 3.15, the first telling of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
This is all about Jesus. Jesus is the promised son of God. He's born of a virgin in the line of King David. He's the Messiah. He's the savior that the Old Testament prophesied, anticipated, and longed for. Going all the way back to Genesis 3. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's amazing. And that, of course, means that Jesus is greater than any angel or any prophetic messenger. In fact, when we look at this text, we learn that Jesus is the object of the angel's worship. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's worthy of the angels' worship. He's worthy of our worship because he's the unique son of God who brings salvation to his people. But not only is Jesus the one the Old Testament longed for, he also did what the Old Testament prophesied. Jesus, by his life and death, saved his people from their sin. He freely grants them his righteousness. He creates peace between just God and condemned rebels. Jesus alone, in accordance with prophecy, as the Son of God and Messiah, does all that. And that alone makes Jesus our hope of salvation. That's the true Jesus. And that's the Jesus who frees you from trying to earn God's favor and blessing, who frees you from trying to appease God through rituals or spiritual practices. Jesus as Messiah accomplished it all. Jesus as Messiah said, it is finished. With simple faith and trust in the true Jesus, we are right with God. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he is our hope of salvation. A faith that embraces him is living, truly living, and not dying trying to make its own way. The next point we learn from our passage is that a surviving faith embraces Jesus as king. Look at verse 7 and the first bit of verse 8 with me. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, what is the author doing here? Well, if the people are tempted to think of Jesus as an angel, he's going to make this point. Angels are a part of creation, wind and fire. While Jesus, the true Jesus, is the king of creation. Quoting from Psalm 45 now, the author identifies Jesus, the son, as the God king who sits on the throne of creation. That's a bold authority claim. That's the claim that this city, this region, this province, this country, this planet, our solar system, our galaxy, our entire universe is under the divine kingship of Jesus Christ. As our text says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's great and all. The true Jesus is on the throne of creation. He's the king. But why is that so amazing for us? Well, look at the rest of verses 8 and 9. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus, from his position of universal authority and power, rules creation justly. We can know this from his regalia. So I want you to think about it, and maybe I'll ask for a show of hands. Anybody here watched a coronation recently? Coronation of King Charles. Okay, we got some hands here. Let me try again. Has anyone here heard of the coronation of King Charles? Okay, still missing some people. Has anyone here heard of the British monarchy? Okay, I almost got all the hands. So for those who don't know, Canada actually has a monarchy. Yeah, interesting. And recently, for those who don't know, we actually got a new king, and his name is Charles. And recently, Charles was actually crowned king. It's interesting. He was king, but there was a big ceremony. You might have heard about it on the news. You might have heard people talk about it. Maybe you just heard it from me now, but it was made official. King Charles is the king of uh, England, Great Britain, and many other places in the world. King Charles III. And I think we all know, whether this was your first time hearing about Canada's monarchy or not, that when it comes to royalty, symbolism is everything. And as I was scrolling through Twitter this past week, I noticed that there were a lot of people, more than I would have ever guessed, who really care about the symbolism of the monarchy. People were discussing the little details that they got from re-watching the coronation. Yes, you heard me right. People not only watched the coronation, I know my family did, I didn't, but some people took time out of their day to re-watch the coronation. That's a lot of hours spent watching a lot of ceremony. And as people were talking about it, they were incredibly excited. They not only freely chose to sit through this ceremony again, but this time they were all chatting, and I could see them all as the tweets were coming out, that they were noticing different symbols and different actions and different interactions. And as they discussed them all, they were like, wow, this is so cool. It's so significant. And apparently, as they noticed things, they were appreciating this coronation even more. It told them more information about the monarchy that they were happy to discuss and share with each other. Now, as you might have guessed, it wasn't too interesting to me, the coronation. It was more interesting to me watching people talk about the coronation, but I think it serves as evidence for my point. When it comes to royalty, symbolism is everything. From the recognition to the oath, to the anointing, to the investiture, to the enthronement and the homage, every step, every piece, every name, every title, every word, every line has a carefully defined place and the associated symbolism. And in this case, it was, all about, it was all about promoting, defending, and honoring the royal presence of King Charles III. With King Jesus, the King of Kings, when it comes to symbolism being significant, this is true to the highest degree. It is no meaningless throwaway line that the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Jesus' kingdom. This connects to the following line that as divine king of the cosmos, Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Lock into that contrast. Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And believe it or not, that is some of the best news we get from our passage. Because as we just established, 
one of Jesus' blessings to his people as Messiah is that he gives them his righteousness. So Christians hearing this, I want you to hear me now, hear me clearly. Jesus is the true king of creation, and he rules uprightly, loving righteousness and hating wickedness. And for the people saved by Jesus, Christians who are made righteous by him, that is amazing news. On the one hand, there's two parts of this. On the one hand, it means that in the present, we can rest knowing that nothing is out of Jesus' hands. He's in control over everything. And that's freeing. Rather than thinking that we, or some politician, or some medical technology, or some great new invention, whatever it is, as our last hope to save ourselves, our country, or our planet, or whatever it is, we're free to rest knowing that Jesus is king. We're free right here and right now to promote goodness and justice, to speak truth and life the right way, knowing that Jesus is king and nothing is outside of his power. But there's a second part to to this. There's a second reason for hope, because we know that King Jesus is in control of the future. Jesus being king of creation means that we have the promise of future justice and peace. One of the things that people hate about this world today is injustice. Injustice, we hate about it. We hate it. Every time we hear about injustice, we get upset, we get angry. We hate injustice. Why? Because it's wrong. We know it's wrong. We feel it. When we see it, we feel it deep down. We hate it when we see or hear about certain people, especially the rich and powerful, getting away with all sorts of corruption and evil just because they have the resources to suppress justice or they have the power to escape consequences. The good news about Jesus' kingship is that we know no one can escape his justice. The righteous will one day receive their reward and the wicked will one day receive their judgment. That's actually a promise. And to think about that, I just want to read out a verse for you. Psalm 110, verses 5 to 6. I want you to listen to this. It's a powerful, vivid description. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jesus is the king. And his judgment is coming. What I just read, I grant you, was a violent, bloody scene. But thinking about that, I believe it communicates just how serious justice is to the true Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're the king of the mightiest kingdom, the chief of the strongest war band. It doesn't matter if you're part of the majority. There's no safety in numbers. There is no place that wickedness can hide. Justice is coming. And for the righteous, that's amazing news. So think about it. All those mass shooters that we hear about who end their killing sprees by taking their own lives, they didn't escape justice. All those dictators that we hear about or might have lived through ourselves or our grandparents or our great-grandparents, all those dictators who live their lives crushing the masses and stealing their land and wealth, 
they didn't escape justice just because they died peacefully in their beds. All those criminals, we see the Netflix docuseries about it, all those criminals who destroyed lives and livelihoods but just were never caught, it's one of those mysteries, they didn't escape justice. We could live today free from the frustration we see in the world where people want to rip out their hair and cry out their tears because of injustice. We can live today free of that frustration. Why? Because Jesus is king. He's on the throne. He promises justice, and no one escapes his judgment. For the righteous, we can rest and hope today, knowing that the true Jesus sees our struggles, sees our trials, sees our own experiences of injustice, but is in the end still seated on the throne, ruling uprightly and charting his course to his desired just end. We can rest and hope today, knowing that one day Jesus will come to vindicate the righteous and bring his light to the wicked. So place your faith in Jesus, the true Jesus, because that's a faith that can survive in the face of grand injustice, national tragedy, or unexpected loss. Our third point from this text is that a grounding faith embraces Jesus as eternal. Look at verse 10 with me. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Again, the author is applying the Old Testament, and this time he's looking at Psalm 102. Jesus, the Son, is not only the king of creation, he himself is the creator. This is a doctrine that Christians today don't often discuss, but as we study the scripture, we'll notice that Creation itself was a deeply Trinitarian act. All the persons of creation, all the persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. So while we often think of the Father as creator, that's right and true, we also have to see that the Son and Spirit are involved as well. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, during his famous hymn about Jesus, gives us more information and he writes this, For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus, the son, the Messiah, the king, he was there before the beginning. Time and space itself are his creation. But that's not all our text teaches us. Heading back into Hebrews now, let me read verse 10 again, but also add 11 and 12. Follow with me. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Jesus is not only the creator without a beginning, he is a constant, the constant, without an end. This passage beautifully outlines two important Christian doctrines that offer believers so much comfort. Firstly, the eternity of Jesus. I want to hone into one of those powerful contrasts in this text. When it speaks about creation, the foundations of the earth, 
You can think about the grand planets and stars of heaven. You can think about the highest, most ancient mountains. You can think about the massive burning sun in the sky. All these great and glorious aspects of our universe. Our passage, when thinking about these great, amazing, powerful things, has one thing to say in reflection about them all. In verse 11, they will perish. The mountains with their deep roots... The oceans and its endless sprawl, the stars and their countless bright number, they will perish. All of it, everything will perish. But Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the Judge, our text says, you remain. This fallen world, its sinful systems, its rebellious leaders, its wicked cultures, its Sickness, its disease, its death, all of it, they will perish. But Jesus, the righteous one, the defender of the sick and weak, the hope of the nations, the just son of God, you remain. How comforting is the eternity of the true Jesus. But that's just one half of the picture. Again, describing the great and grand creation, our text says, They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. Creation and everything in it, everything, is like a garment that wears out and needs to be changed. But Jesus, right here it says in our text, you are the same. Your years have no end. Another powerful contrast. Jesus is immutable and unchanging. But creation... Our cultures, our systems, our technology, our leaders, our entertainment, our everything, they will perish. They will be changed like a garment. So, to get us thinking about that, to think about how creation will be changed, I want you to imagine fast fashion. One season, it's the hottest new thing. Everyone has it and it's great. We love it. All the kids race in line to get it. And we've all seen it here before. If you've been to the malls, if you've been to the shops, you've seen it all before. When the latest shoes come out, when the new shirts come out, or the latest iPhone, or the latest ticket for the latest and greatest upcoming artist. We've all seen it before. Those lines upon lines of young people, old people, everyone in between. And we see it. Some of us are standing in line, but others are looking and saying, wow, they stood in line for hours and hours just to get this. Why do people do that? Because we like it. It's cool. I love having the latest iPhone. It's fun. I love having the newest shoes. They're cool. But the reality is, by the end of the summer, by the end of the season, the latest shoes, the latest shirt, it's all worn out. It wasn't built to last. Get the latest hat or the latest pants, and by next year, they're kind of old news. They're a little bit boring. Newest iPhone, I got one of those. Let me tell you, a few months later, it's kind of feeling slow. It's feeling a bit clunky, heavy in my hand. Don't get me started on that battery life. It's already depleted. That latest upcoming artist that everyone was so excited about, gone. It's like they fell off the face of the earth. They had that one song, now they disappeared. Where'd they go? Our world... Everything we're tempted to trust in, everything we're tempted to love and place our hope in, our identity around, 
it's all going to fade away like a garment after a season. It's all fast fashion. But Jesus, the son, he remains the same. His years have no end. Everything Jesus is, everything Jesus stands for, everything Jesus accomplishes, everything Jesus promises, that will never change. He's the changeless creator and the timeless constant. He's eternal, and his being is unchanging, and that's amazing. For that means that Jesus alone is our hope of eternity. In the face of life's trials, our uncertainties about the future, the ups and downs, we can trust Jesus. One day or the next, our world, personally or globally, might flip upside down. Some of you, like Ellie did, might have already felt that. The sudden loss of a job, the sudden death of a loved one, the sudden passing of a new and concerning law, or the unexpected and terrifying outcome of an election. These things will come, and they will bring with them worry, fear, and anxiety. But as Christians, Jesus' righteous people, we can rest because Jesus is our Savior, Jesus is our King, and Jesus is our hope of eternity. We can rest knowing that Jesus will keep his promises. And to think of one great one, John 6:40 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Life might go sideways. You might have already felt that. Our world might suddenly change. It certainly has in my lifetime. But Jesus and his promises will never change. They will never go away. They will never go out of style. They'll never wear out or they'll never be suddenly ineffective or outdated. We have the promise of eternal life. And Jesus says that great and glorious promise is an absolute guarantee that simply comes through faith in him. It really is that simple. Jesus himself says so in John 6, 47. This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's that simple. In the face of a chaotic world and an uncertain future, in the midst of all those worries and fears, don't trust in the world or its ways. Like fast fashion, the world's promises and guarantees, the world's leaders and technologies, the world's innovations and understandings are here one day and gone the next. No hope or security for the future. But Jesus, he's eternal. He's the constant. Believer, I'm speaking to you now. Jesus, he was here for you yesterday. He's here for you today. And he's here for you tomorrow. He was here for you 2,000 years ago when he died to save you on a cross. And he'll be for you in the future when he returns in glory and raises you up to eternal life. Embrace those promises. Embrace the creator. Embrace this Jesus, the true Jesus, as your grounding hope in that ever-changing world. Our final point. A thriving faith embraces Jesus as our peace. Verses 13 and 14 of our text are sort of like a summative conclusion to the author's point about Jesus and the angels. So 
I will conclude on this point too. Follow with me into verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Our passage ends where it began, comparing Jesus to the angels. Again, if the people were tempted to worship an angelic Jesus, our author is asking them, to which angel has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? To none of them, of course. Jesus is greater than any angel. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the king of creation. He's the changeless, eternal one. To him alone does God say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Our author is making clear that this statement in Psalm 110 applies to Jesus, the son. Jesus is the victorious one who sits at God's right hand. Jesus is the one who will be victorious as God places all his enemies under his feet. This is a powerful statement of who Jesus is. Unlike the angelic Jesus, unlike health and wealth Jesus, unlike any Jesus that we might be thinking of, whether it's political boyfriend or just a messenger Jesus, the true Jesus is seated in victory. As the Messiah, he's defeated death and hell on the cross. As the king, he's now ruling on creation's throne. As eternal, he will outlast and roll up every rival, every system, every rebel, like a garment that's worn out and gone out of style. Jesus is and will be victorious over every foe, over every enemy, over every source of wickedness. The true Jesus, by definition, is the victorious one. God promises to place every enemy under his feet. And until then, Jesus is seated by his side in victory, ruling and reigning over the cosmos. That's the true Jesus. On the other hand, what about the angels? Well, while Jesus is ruling and reigning, the angels are about his kingly business. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's the king who cares about his people. The angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those people. What does that look like? Well, in our present time, here and now, scripture gives us an example in Luke 16. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The angels, their job is to carry God's people to paradise when they die. That's one of many examples of how the angels obey Jesus and serve as people in the here and now. Mercifully, when believers die, we're not alone. We're not wondering what's happening. We're not confused. No, Jesus sends his angels to usher us into his presence. What an amazing service and mercy for our sakes. Also from scripture, we know that in the last day, in that grand return when Jesus brings justice and judgment for the wicked and raises the righteous, his people, to eternal life, that the angels will help facilitate all that. Matthew 24, 31 says this, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, 
and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Angels are amazing. Jesus uses them to save, comfort, and encourage his people. If you look in scripture, it's all over the place. I think we sometimes just read over it. But angels are great servants of Jesus, and they serve his purpose. But let's bring these two teachings together. Jesus is and will be victorious, and the angels are sent by Jesus to serve his people. What does that leave us with? It leaves us with this conclusion. It leaves us with this truth, that Jesus alone is our hope of peace. We live in this crazy, confusing, constantly changing, violent, and even stifling world. Jesus, our Savior, our King, he says and will not turn back from the promise that he will return in victory. And when he does, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. If you rest in this promise of the future, that's freeing. That's peace for life in this world. Everything is not okay now. I think that's obvious. Just turn on the news or think about how your joints feel in the morning. Everything is not okay right now. But it will be, thanks to the true Jesus. But this Jesus isn't just offering hope for the future. As our text says, his angels right now, by their very nature, are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We don't have to run around trying to earn salvation. We don't have to wear ourselves out looking for hope. We don't have to kill ourselves trying to figure out how to deal with death. We're free to thrive. We're free to be at peace. We're free to let the angels run around and take care of the details. We're free to do all this when we place our faith in the true Jesus. The Jesus who is more than a genie, more than a boyfriend, and more than a prophet, more than an angel, and certainly more than a messenger. The true Jesus, the Jesus we're called to embrace, the Jesus who grants us life, helps us survive this unjust world, who will ground us in this constantly changing landscape, who will allow us to truly thrive as humanity, this Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. He's the cosmic king of creation. He's the eternal one, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the victorious one, the champion of the weak and the oppressed. He is the almighty Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. And here is his royal declaration to you. Listen now as I proclaim the word of the king. Come to me, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The king has invited you to peace. So if you're listening to this today, an unbeliever, will you accept his call? Will you turn from your sin Will you turn from the garments of this world? Will you turn from your inferior, false understandings of Jesus that you might have heard from a friend or created for yourself? Will you embrace the hope, salvation, justice, eternity, and peace that only the true Jesus can give? I implore you to do so. 
The consequence of your sin, which you deserve, is death and the torments of hell. Endless, devastating. The king is offering you peace and life, won by his own shed blood. Repent and believe and receive his righteousness. But believers, I have a message for you as well. Do not forget who Jesus is. In this crazy world, don't lose your vision. Keep your eyes fixed on the true Jesus. Do not neglect the gift of salvation. Do not neglect his power and might. Honor him by embracing his rest and his good gifts. Worship him. Gather with his people. Read his word. Pray diligently and daily. And if you do so, you will know and never forget the joy, hope, and peace found in him alone. Let's pray. Father, we live in a crazy, confusing, sometimes horrible world. But we know that there's hope. We know that there's a source of peace. And we know that in Jesus alone, we might find that rest for our souls. Father, in this world, with our ailments, with our sickness, with our death, with our confusion, with our uncertainty, we long for rest. And we're grateful that Jesus promises it to us. He invites us to his rest. So God, help us to rest in him now and embrace the hope of the true Jesus. In his name, amen.